Hello, everyone. This is Ken, and I really want to thank you all for listening to my podcast. I hope you all enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoy creating it. I have a few favors that I'd like to ask of you to do for me, if you could. One would be to tell a friend. If you enjoy it and you think your friends might enjoy it, then please spread the word. There are about a million and one podcasts out there, and it's hard to stand out in that kind of a crowd. So spreading the word would really help. Another way to spread the word is to write a review. People look for reviews to find out which podcasts are good, and it's as simple as touching four out of five stars or whatever you're feeling that day, or writing a few words to let people know what the podcast is all about. And finally, I'd like to ask your thoughts and get your input on what book you'd like me to read. I have a couple in mind that I really want to read, but I also want to hear from you. So you could make a mention of it in the review you're going to write, or you can send me an email at kenreadstheclassics at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And I hope you enjoy this next episode of Ken Reads the Classics. Hello and welcome back to Ken Reads the Classics. Today we're going to continue with Treasure Island but we have to cover a few terms before we get into chapter 23. The first of those terms is leeway, and leeway is the travel or way a ship makes on the opposite side of the wind or the lee side of the wind. And the second is hawser, and a hawser is a rope or line, as the sailors would call it, that they use during tow operations or mooring the ship and it comes off the bow of the ship and secures the ship to another ship in the case of towing or to an anchor or other mooring. So essentially whereas a small boat like a gig or a jolly boat or a john boat, we've heard all those terms refer to smaller boats, those small boats have painters and ships have housers. All right, with that in mind, let's continue with Treasure Island. Chapter 23, The Ebb Tide Runs The Coracle gave me ample reason to know her as a very safe boat, especially for a person of my height and weight, both buoyant and clever in a seaway but she was the most cross-grained, lopsided craft to manage. Do as I pleased, she always made more leeway than anything else, and she enjoyed turning round and round more than anything else. Even Ben Gunn himself admitted that she was queer to handle till you do her way. Certainly, I did not know her way. She turned in every direction but the one I wanted to go. The most part of the time we were broadside to the Hispaniola, and I am very sure I never should have made the ship at all but for the tide. By good fortune, paddle as I pleased, the tide still swept me down, 
and there lay the Hispaniola right in the fairway, hardly to be missed. First she loomed before me like a blot of something yet blacker than darkness. Then her spars and hull began to take shape, and the next moment, as it seemed, for the farther I went, the brisker grew the current of the ebb. I came alongside of her hawser and held on to it. The strong current forced her to pull hard at her anchor, making the hawser as taut as a bowstring. All round the hull, in the blackness, the rippling current bubbled and chattered like a little mountain stream. One cut with my sea gully, and the Hispaniola would go humming down the tide. So far, so good, but it next occurred to my recollection that a taut hawser, suddenly cut, is a thing as dangerous as a kicking horse. Ten to one, if I were so foolhardy as to cut the Hispaniola from her anchor, the whip from the hawser would knock me and the coracle clean out of the water. This brought me to a full stop. I believed I would have to abandon my design, but soon fortune favored me. The light airs which at first blew from the southeast and south hauled round after nightfall into the southwest. Just while I was meditating, a puff came, caught the Hispaniola, and forced her up into the current, and to my great joy I felt the hawser slacken in my grasp, and the hand by which I held it dip for a second under water. With that I made my mind up, took out my gully, opened it with my teeth, and cut one strand after another, till the vessel swung only by two. Then I lay quiet, waiting to sever these last when the strain should be once more lightened by a breath of wind. All this time I could hear the sound of loud voices from the cabin, but to say truth, my mind had been so entirely taken up with other thoughts that I scarcely gave ear. Now, however, when I had nothing else to do, I began to pay more heed. One I recognized for the coxswains, Israel Hands, Flint's gunner in former days. The other was, of course, my friend of the red nightcap. Both men were plainly the worse of drink, and they were still drinking, for even while I listened, one of them, with a drunken cry, opened the stern window and threw out something, which I divined to be an empty bottle. But they were not only tipsy, they were also furiously angry. Oaths flew like hailstones, and every now and then there came forth such an explosion as I thought was sure to end in blows. But each time the quarrel passed off, and the voices grumbled lower for a while, until the next crisis came, and in its turn passed away without result. On shore, I could see the glow of the great campfire burning warmly through the shoreside trees. Someone sang a dull, old, droning sailor's song, with a droop and a quaver at the end of every verse, and seemingly no end to it at all but the patience of the singer, I heard it on the voyage more than once before, and remembered these words. But one man of her crew alive, what put to sea with seventy-five? And I thought it was a ditty rather too dolefully appropriate for a company that had met such cruel losses in the morning. But indeed, from what I saw, all these buccaneers were as callous as the sea they sailed on. At last the breeze came. 
The schooner sidled and drew nearer in the dark. I felt the hawser slacken once more, and with a good, tough effort cut the last fibers through. The breeze had but little action on the coracle, and the force swept me against the bows of the Hispaniola almost instantly. At the same time, the schooner began to turn upon her heel, spinning slowly, end for end, across the current. I wrought like a fiend, for I expected the sea to swamp my little craft at every moment, and since I found I could not push the coracle directly off, I now shoved straight astern. At length I cleared myself of my dangerous neighbor, and just as I gave the last impulsion, my hands came across a light cord that trailed overboard across the stern bulwarks. Instantly I grasped it. Why I should have done so, I can hardly say. It was at first mere instinct, but once I held it in my hand and found it fast, curiosity began to get the upper hand, and I determined I should look through the cabin window. I pulled in, hand over hand, on the cord, and when I judged myself near enough, rose at infinite risk to about half my height, and thus commanded the roof and a slice of the interior of the cabin. By this time, the schooner and her little consort were gliding pretty swiftly through the water. Indeed, we had already fetched up level with the campfire. The ship was talking, as sailors say, loudly, treading the innumerable ripples with an incessant weltering splash. And until I got my eye above the window sill, I could not comprehend why the watchman had taken no alarm. One glance, however, showed sufficient reason, and I durst take only one glance from that unsteady skiff. I saw Hans and his companion locked together in deadly wrestle, each with a hand upon the other's throat. I dropped upon the thwart again, none too soon, for I was near overboard. The bright lamp burned the image of these two furious and crimson faces swaying together in deadly embrace, so I shut my eyes to let them grow once more familiar with the darkness. The endless ballad came to an end at last, and the whole diminished company about the campfire broke into the chorus I heard so often. Fifteen men on a dead man's chest, yo-ho-ho ho, and a bottle of rum, drink and the devil had done for the rest, yo-ho-ho ho, and a bottle of rum. I thought how busy drink and devil were at that very moment in the cabin of the Hispaniola, when a sudden lurch of the coracle surprised me. At the same moment she yawed sharply and seemed to change her course. The speed in the meantime strangely increased. I opened my eyes at once. All round me I saw little ripples combing over with a sharp bristling sound and a slightly phosphorescent glow. The wake of the Hispaniola still whirled me along a few yards astern, while she seemed to stagger in her course. I saw her spars toss a little against the blackness of the night. Nay, as I looked longer, she wheeled to the southward. I glanced over my shoulder, and my heart jumped against my ribs. There, right behind me, the campfire glowed brighter than before. The current turned at right angles, sweeping round along with the tall schooner and the little dancing coracle. Ever quickening, ever bubbling higher, ever muttering louder, 
it went spinning through the narrows for the open sea. Suddenly the schooner in front of me gave a violent yaw, turning, perhaps, through twenty degrees, and almost at the same moment one shout followed another from on board. I could hear feet pounding on the companion ladder, and I knew that, at last, a sense of disaster awakened the two drunkards and interrupted their quarrel. I lay down flat in the bottom of that wretched skiff and devoutly recommended my spirit to its maker. At the end of the straits, I felt sure we would fall into some bar of raging breakers where all my troubles would end speedily. And though I could, perhaps, bear to die, I could not bear to look upon my fate as it approached. So I lay there for what seemed like hours, continually beaten to and fro upon the billows, now and again wetted with flying sprays, and never ceasing to expect death at the next plunge. Gradually, weariness grew upon me, a numbness, an occasional stupor fell upon my mind even in the midst of my terrors, until sleep at last supervened, and in my sea-tossed coracle I lay and dreamed of home and the old Admiral Benbow. Chapter 24 The Cruise of the Coracle I awoke in broad day and found myself tossing at the southwest end of Treasure Island. The sun was up, but the great bulk of the spyglass, which on this side descended almost to the sea in formidable cliffs, kept the sun hidden from me. Howl Bowline Head and Mizzenmast Hill were at my elbow, the hill bare and dark the head bound with cliffs forty or fifty feet high and fringed with great masses of fallen rock. I was scarce a quarter of a mile to seaward, and I first thought to paddle to land. I soon gave that notion over, for among the fallen rocks the breakers spouted heavy sprays and bellowed loud reverberations, each succeeded one another from second to second. And if I ventured nearer, I saw myself dashed to death upon the rough shore or spending my strength in vain to scale the beetling crags. Nor was that all, for crawling together on flat tables of rock or letting themselves drop into the sea with loud reports, I beheld huge slimy monsters, soft tails, as it were, of incredible bigness, two or three score of them together, making the rocks echo with their barkings. Since that day, I came to understand they were sea lions and entirely harmless. But the look of them, added to the difficulty of the shore and the high running of the surf, was more than enough to disgust me of that landing place. I felt willing, rather, to starve at sea than to confront such perils. In the meantime, I had a better chance before me. North of Howboline Head, the land runs in a long way, leaving at low tide a long stretch of yellow sand. To the north of that again, there comes another cape buried in tall green grass, which descended to the margin of the sea, Cape of the Woods, as marked on the chart. I remembered what Silver said about the current that sets northward along the whole west coast of Treasure Island, and seeing from my position that I already fell under its influence, 
I preferred to leave Halbolein Head behind me and reserve my strength for an attempt to land upon the kindlier-looking Cape of the Woods. There was a great, smooth swell upon the sea. The wind blew steady and gentle from the south, finding no contrariety between that and the current. The billows rose and fell unbroken. Had it been otherwise, I must long ago have perished. But as it was, my little and light boat rode along easily and securely. Often, as I lay still at the bottom and kept no more than an eye above the gunwale, I would see a big blue summit heaving close above me. Yet the coracle would but bounce a little, dance as if on springs, and subside on the other side into the trough as lightly as a bird. After a little while, I began to grow very bold, and sat up to try my skill at paddling. But even a small change in the disposition of the weight will produce violent changes in the behavior of a coracle. I had hardly moved before the boat gave up at once her gentle dancing movement, and ran straight down a slope of water so steep that it made me giddy. With a spout of spray, she struck her nose into the deep side of the next wave. The spray drenched and terrified me. I fell instantly back into my old position, whereupon the coracle seemed to find her head again and led me as softly as before among the billows. She made it plain I should not interfere with her, and at that rate, since I could in no way influence her course, all hope of reaching land abandoned me. I became horribly frightened, but I kept my head for all that. First, moving with all care, I gradually bailed out the coracle with my sea cap. Then, getting my eye once more above the gunwale, I set myself to study how she managed to slip so quietly through the rollers. I found each wave, instead of the big, smooth, glossy mountain it looks from shore or from a vessel's deck, was for all the world like any range of hills on dry land, full of peaks and smooth places and valleys. The coracle, left to herself, turning from side to side, threaded, so to speak, her way through these lower parts, and avoided the steep slopes and higher toppling summits of the wave. Well now, thought I to myself, it is plain I must lie where I am and not disturb the balance. But it is plain also that I can put the paddle over the side and from time to time, in smooth places, give her a shove or two towards land. No sooner thought upon than done. There I lay on my elbows in the most trying attitude, and every now and again gave a weak stroke or two to turn her head to shore. It was very tiring and slow work, yet I visibly gained ground, and as we drew near the Cape of the Woods, though I saw I must infallibly miss that point, I still made some hundred yards of easting. Indeed, I closed in. I could see the cool green tree tops swaying together in the breeze, and I felt sure I should make the next promontory without fail. It was high time, for now thirst began to torture me. The glow of the sun from above, its thousandfold reflections from the wave, the sea water that fell and dried upon me, caking my very lips with salt, combined to make my throat burn and my brain ache.
The sight of the trees so near at hand made me sick with longing, but the current soon carried me past the point, and as the next reach of sea opened out, I beheld a sight that changed the nature of my thoughts. Right in front of me, not half a mile away, I beheld the Hispaniola under sail. I made sure, of course, they should take me, but I was so distressed for want of water that I scarce knew whether to be glad or sorry at the thought, and long before I came to a conclusion, surprise took entire possession of my mind, and I could do nothing but stare and wonder. The Hispaniola was under her mainsail and two jibs, and the beautiful white canvas shone in the sun like snow or silver. When I first sighted her, all her sails drew air. She lay a course about northwest, and I presumed the men on board would sail a course round the island on their way back to the anchorage. Presently, she began to fetch more and more to the westward, so that I thought they sighted me and headed about in chase. At last, however, she fell right into the wind's eye, which took her dead aback. She stood there a while, helpless, with her sails shivering. Clumsy fellows, said I, they must still be drunk as owls, and I thought how Captain Smollett would send them skipping. Meanwhile, the schooner gradually fell off and filled again upon another tack. She sailed swiftly for a minute or so and brought up once more dead in the wind's eye. This happened again and again, to and fro, up and down, north, south, east, and west. The Hispaniola sailed by swoops and dashes, and at each repetition she ended as she began, with idly flapping canvas. It became clear to me that no one steered her, and if so, what happened to the men? Either they were dead drunk or deserted her, I thought, and perhaps, if I could get on board, I might return the vessel to her captain. The current bore coracle and schooner southward at an equal rate. As for the latter sailing, it was so wild and intermittent that she hung each time so long in irons that she certainly gained nothing, and if she did not even lose. I made sure that I could overhaul her, if only I dared to sit up and paddle. The scheme held an inspiring air of adventure, and the thought of that water-barrel sitting beside the fore companion doubled my growing courage. Up I got. Another cloud of spray instantly welcomed me, but this time I stuck to my purpose and set myself, with all my strength and caution, to paddle after the unsteered Hispaniola. Once I shipped a sea so heavy that I had to stop and bail with my heart fluttering like a bird. But gradually I got into the way of the thing and guided my coracle among the waves, with only now and then a blow upon her bows and a dash of foam in my face. I now gained rapidly on the schooner. I could see the brass glisten on the tiller as it banged about, and still no soul appeared on her decks. I could not choose but to suppose they deserted her. If not, the men lie drunk below, where I might batten them down, perhaps, and do what I chose with the ship. For some time she stood still, the worst thing possible for me. She headed nearly due south, yawing, of course, all the time. Each time she fell off, 
her sails partly filled, and these brought her in a moment right up to the wind again. I said, this was the worst thing possible for me, for helpless as she looked in this situation, with the canvas cracking like a cannon and the blocks trundling and banging on the deck, she still continued to run away from me, not only with the speed of the current, but by the whole amount of her naturally great leeway. But now, at last, I had my chance. The breeze fell very low for some seconds, and as the current gradually turned her, the Hispaniola revolved slowly round her center, and at last presented me her stern. With the cabin window still gaping open, and the lamp over the table still burning on into the day, the mainsail hung drooped like a banner. She stood stock still but for the current. For the last little while I had even lost— but now, redoubling my efforts, I began once more to overhaul the chase. I closed within a hundred yards from her when the wind came again in a clap. She filled on the port tack and sailed off again, stooping and skimming like a swallow. I despaired at first impulse, but felt joy at the second. Round she came till she turned broadside to me. Round still! till she covered a half and then two-thirds and then three-quarters of the distance that separated us. I could see the waves boiling white under her forefoot. Immensely tall she looked to me from my low station in the coracle. And then, of a sudden, I began to comprehend. I had scarce time to think, scarce time to act and save myself. The coracle rose on the summit of one swell, then the schooner came stooping over the next. The bowsprit hung over my head. I sprang to my feet and leaped, stamping the coracle under water. With one hand I caught the jib boom, while my foot was lodged between the stay and the brace. And as I still clung there panting, a dull blow told me that the schooner had charged down upon and struck the coracle, leaving me without retreat on the Hispaniola. Chapter 25. I Strike the Jolly Roger. I had scarce gained a position on the bowsprit when the flying jib flapped and filled upon the other tack with a report like a gun. The schooner trembled to her keel under the reverse, but the next moment, the other sails still drawing, the jib flapped back again and hung idle. This jolt nearly tossed me off into the sea, and now I lost no time. I crawled back along the bowsprit and tumbled head foremost on the deck. I was on the lee side of the forecastle, and the still-drawing mainsail concealed from me a certain portion of the after-deck. I saw not a soul. The planks, which had not been swabbed since the mutiny, bore the print of many feet, an empty bottle, broken by the neck, tumbled to and fro like a live thing in the scuppers. Suddenly, the Hispaniola came right into the wind. The jibs behind me cracked aloud, and the rudder slammed too. The whole ship gave a sickening heave and shudder, and at the same moment the main boom swung inboard, the sheet groaning in the blocks, and showed me the lee after deck. There I spied the two watchmen, sure enough, 
Red Cap lay on his back, as stiff as a hand spike, with his arms stretched out like those of a crucifix, and his teeth showing through his open lips. Israel hands propped up against the bulwarks, his chin on his chest, his hands lying open before him on the deck, his face as white under its tan as a tallow candle. For a while the ship kept bucking and sidling like a vicious horse, the sails filling now on one tack, now on another, and the boom swinging to and fro till the mast groaned aloud under the strain. Now and again, too, a cloud of light sprays would come over the bulwark and a heavy blow of the ship's bows against the swell. This great ship made so much heavier weather of it than my home-made lopsided coracle, now gone to the bottom of the sea. At every jump of the schooner, Red Cap slipped to and fro, but neither his attitude nor his teeth-disclosing grin was any way disturbed by this rough usage, a ghastly sight to behold indeed. At every jump, too, Hands appeared still more to sink into himself and settle down upon the deck, his feet sliding ever the farther apart and the whole body canting towards the stern so that his face became, little by little, hid from me. And at last I could see nothing beyond his ear and the frayed ringlet of one whisker. At the same time, I observed, around both of them, splashes of dark blood upon the planks, and began to feel sure that they had killed each other in their drunken wrath. While I thus looked and wondered, in a calm moment when the ship sat still, Israel's hands turned partly round, and with a low moan writhed himself back to the position in which I first saw him. The moan which told of pain and deadly weakness, and the way in which his jaw hung open went right to my heart. But when I remembered the talk I overheard from the apple barrel, all pity left me. I walked aft until I reached the mainmast. Come aboard, Mr. Hands, I said ironically. He rolled his eyes round heavily, but he was too far gone to express surprise. All he could do was to utter one word, brandy. It occurred to me there was no time to lose, and dodging the boom as it once more lurched across the deck, I slipped aft and down the companion stairs into the cabin. It was such a scene of confusion as you can hardly fancy. In their frenzied quest for the chart, the mutineers broke all the lockfast places. The thick mud caked the floor where ruffians had sat down to drink or consult after waiting in the marshes round their camp. The bulkheads, all painted in clear white and beaded round with gilt, bore a pattern of dirty hands. Dozens of empty bottles clinked together in corners to the rolling of the ship. One of the doctor's medical books lay open on the table. Half of the leaves gutted out, I suppose, for the pipe lights. In the midst of all this, the lamp still cast a smoky glow, obscure and brown as umber. I went into the cellar. All the barrels were gone, and of the bottles, a most surprising number had been drunk out and thrown away. Certainly, since the mutiny began, not a man of them could ever have been sober. Foraging about, I found a bottle with some brandy left. 
I took this for hands, and for myself I routed out some biscuit, some pickled fruits, a great bunch of raisins, and a piece of cheese. With these I came on deck, put down my own stock behind the rudder head, and well out of the coxswain's reach. I then went forward to the water barrel, and had a good deep drink of water. Then, and not till then, gave hands the brandy. He must have drunk a gill before he took the bottle from his mouth. Ay, said he, by thunder, but I wanted some of that. I had sat down already in my own corner and begun to eat. Much hurt, I asked him. He grunted, or rather, I might say, he barked. If that doctor was aboard, he said, I'd be right enough in a couple of turns. But I don't have no manner of luck, you see, and that's what's the matter with me. As for that swab, he's good as dead he is, indicating the man with the red cap. He weren't no seaman anyhow. And where mout you have come from? Well, said I, I've come aboard to take possession of this ship, Mr. Hands, and you'll please regard me as your captain until further notice. He looked at me sourly enough, but said nothing. Some of the color had come back into his cheeks, though he still looked very sick and still continued to slip out and settle down as the ship banged about. By the by, I continued, I can't have these colors, Mr. Hands, and by your leave, I'll strike them. Better none than these. And again dodging the boom, I ran to the color lines handed down their cursed black flag, and chucked it overboard. God save the king, said I, waving my cap, and there is an end to Captain Silver. He watched me keenly and slyly, his chin all the while on his breast. I reckon, he said at last, I reckon, Captain Hawkins, you'll kind of want to get ashore now. Suppose we talks. Why, yes, says I, with all my heart, Mr. Hands, say on. And I went back to my meal with a good appetite. This man, he began, nodding feebly at the corpse. O'Brien were his name, a rank Irelander. This man and me got the canvas on her, meaning for to sail her back. Well, he's dead now, he is, as dead as Bilge. And who's to sail the ship? I don't see. Without I gives you a hint, you ain't that man, as far as I can tell. Now, you look here. You gives me food and drink, and an old scar for anchor to tie my wound up, you do. And I'll tell you how to sail her. And that's about square all round, I take it. I'll tell you one thing, says I. I'm not going back to Captain Kidd's anchorage. I mean to get into North Inlet and beach her quietly there. To be sure you did, he cried. Why, I ain't such an infernal lubber after all. I can see, can't I? I've tried my fling, I have, and I've lost. And it's you has the wind of me. North Inlet? Why, I haven't a choice, not I. I'd help you sail her up to execution dock by thunder. So I would. Well, as it seemed to me, there was some sense in this. We struck our bargain on the spot. 
In three minutes, I had the Hispaniola sailing easily before the wind along the coast of Treasure Island, with good hopes of turning the northern point ere noon and beating down again as far as North Inlet before high water. Then we might beach her safely and wait till the subsiding tide permitted us to land. Then I lashed the tiller and went below to my own chest, where I got a soft silk handkerchief of my mother's. With this, and with my aid, hands bound up the great bleeding stab he received in the thigh, and after he ate a little and swallowed a dram or two of the brandy, he began to pick up visibly, sat straighter up, spoke louder and clearer, and looked in every way another man. The breeze served us admirably. We skimmed before it like a bird, the coast of the island flashing by and the view changing every minute. Soon we passed the highlands and bowled beside low, sandy country, sparsely dotted with dwarf pines. And soon we sailed beyond that again and turned the corner of the rocky hill that ends the island on the north. I was greatly elated with my new command and pleased with the bright, sunshiny weather and these different prospects of the coast. I had now plenty of water and good things to eat. My great conquest quieted my conscience, which had smote me hard for my desertion. I should, I think, had nothing left me to desire, but for the eyes of the coxswain as they followed me derisively about the deck, and the odd smile that appeared continually on his face. His smile had in it something both of pain and weakness, a haggard old man's smile. And besides that, his expression held a grain of derision, a shadow of treachery as he craftily watched me at my work, and watched and watched and watched. Chapter 26. Israel Hands. The wind, serving us to a desire, now hauled into the west. We could run so much the easier from the northeast corner of the island to the mouth of the north inlet. Time hung on our hands, for we lacked power to anchor, and dared not beach her till the tide had flowed a good deal farther. The coxswain told me how to lay the ship too. After a good many trials, I succeeded, and we both sat in silence over another meal. Cap'n, he said at length with that same uncomfortable smile, here's my old shipmate, O'Brien. Suppose you was to heave him overboard. I ain't particular as a rule, and I don't take no blame for settling his hash, but I don't reckon him ornamental now, do you? I'm not strong enough, and I don't like the job, and there he lies for me, said I. This here's an unlucky ship, Jim, he went on, blinking. There's a power of men been killed in this Hispaniola, a side o' poor seaman dead and gone since you and me took ship to Bristol. I never seen such dirty luck, not I. There was this here O'Brien, now he's dead, ain't he? Well, now, I'm no scholar, and you're a lad as can read and figure, and to put it straight, do you take it as a dead man is dead for good, or do he come alive again? You can kill the body, Mr. Hands, but not the spirit, 
You must know that already, I replied. O'Brien there is in another world and may be watching us. Ah, says he, well, that's unfortunate. Appears as if killing parties was a waste of time. How some ever spirits don't reckon for much by what I've seen. I'll chance it with the spirits, Jim. And now you've spoke up free, and I'll take it kind if you'd step down into that there cabin and get me a, a well, uh, shiver my timbers. Uh, I can't hit the name, aunt. Well, you get me a bottle of wine, Jim. This here brandy's too strong for my head. Now the coxswain's hesitation seemed unnatural, and as for the notion of his preferring wine to brandy, I entirely disbelieved it. The whole story was a pretext. He wanted me to leave the deck. So much was plain. But with what purpose I could in no way imagine. His eyes never met mine. They kept wandering to and fro, up and down, now with a look to the sky, now with a flitting glance upon the dead O'Brien. All the time he kept smiling and putting his tongue out in the most guilty, embarrassed manner, so that a child could have told that he was bent on some deception. I was prompt with my answer, however, for I saw where my advantage lay, and that with a fellow so densely stupid, I could easily conceal my suspicions to the end. Some wine, I said. Far better. Will you have white or red? Well, I reckon it's about the blessed same to me, shipmate, he replied. So it's strong and plenty of it. What's the odds? All right, I answered. I'll bring you port, Mr. Hands, but I'll have to dig for it. With that, I scuttled down the companion with all the noise I could, slipped off my shoes, ran quietly along the sparred gallery, mounted the forecastle ladder, and popped my head out of the fore companion. I knew he would not expect to see me there, yet I took every precaution possible, and certainly the worst of my suspicions proved too true. He rose from his position to his hands and knees, and though his leg obviously hurt him pretty sharply when he moved, for I could hear him stifle a groan, yet he trailed himself across the deck at a good rattling rate. In half a minute he reached a coil of rope near the port scuppers. He pulled out a long knife, or rather a short dirk, discolored to the hilt with blood. He looked upon it for a moment, thrusting forth his underjaw, tried the point upon his hand, and then, hastily concealing it in the bosom of his jacket, trundled back again to his old place against the bulwark. I now knew all that I required to know. Israel could move about. He was now armed, and he would make me victim to his scheme. What he would do afterwards, whether he would try to crawl right across the island from North Inlet to the camp among the swamps, or whether he would fire Long Tom, trusting that his own comrades might come first to help him, was, of course, more than I could say. Yet I felt sure that I could trust him in one point, since we both desired to have the schooner stranded safe enough in a sheltered place, and when the time came, she could be got off again with as little labor and danger as might be. Until that was done, I considered that he would certainly spare my life. 
While I turned the business over in my mind, I kept my body busy. I stole back to the cabin, slipped once more into my shoes, and laid my hand at random on a bottle of wine. And now, with this for an excuse, I made my reappearance on the deck. Hands lay as I left him, all fallen together in a bundle, and with his eyelids lowered as though he were too weak to bear the light. He looked up, however, at my coming, knocked the neck off the bottle like a man who had done the same thing often, and took a good swig, with his favorite toast of, Here's luck! Then he lay quiet for a little, and then, pulling out a stick of tobacco, begged me to cut him a quid. Cut me a chunk of that, says he, for I haven't no knife and hardly strength enough, so be as I had. Ah, Jim, Jim, I reckon I've missed days. Cut me a quid, as likely be the last lad, for I'm not for my long home, and no mistake. Well, said I, I'll cut you some tobacco, but if I was you and thought myself so badly, I would go to my prayers like a Christian man. Why? said he. Now, you tell me why. Why? I cried. You were asking me just now about the dead. You've broken your trust. You lived in sin and lies and blood. There's a man you killed lying at your feet this moment. And you ask me why? For God's mercy, Mr. Hands, that's why. I spoke with a little heat, thinking of the bloody dirk he had hidden in his coat and designed in his ill thoughts to end me with. He, for his part, took a great draught of the wine and spoke with the most unusual solemnity. For thirty years, he said, I've sailed the seas and seen good and bad, better and worse, fair weather and foul, provisions running out, knives going and what not. Well, now, I tell you, I never seen good come a goodness yet. Him as strikes first is my fancy. Dead men don't bite. Them's my views. Amen. So be it. And now you look here, he added, suddenly changing his tone. We've had about enough of this foolery. The tide's made good enough by now. You just take my orders, Cap'n Hawkins, and we'll sail slap in and be done with it. All told, we had scarce two miles to run, but the navigation was delicate. The entrance to this northern anchorage was not only narrow and shoal, but lay east and west, so that we must handle the schooner nicely to get her in. I think I was a good, prompt subaltern, and I am very sure that Hans was an excellent pilot, for we went about and about and dodged in, shaving the banks with a certainty and a neatness that were a pleasure to behold. Soon after we passed the heads, the land closed around us. The shores of North Inlet were as thickly wooded as those of the southern anchorages. But the space was longer and narrower, and more like the estuary of a river. It later proved so. Right before us, at the southern end, we saw the wreck of a ship in the last stages of dilapidation. At one time, this great three-masted vessel sailed the high seas, but now laid trapped in the inlet, 
exposed to the injuries of the weather for so long that great webs of dripping seaweed hung about her, and on the deck of it shore bushes took root and now flourished thick with flowers. This sad sight proved helpful, for it showed us that the anchorage was calm. Now, said Hans, look here. There's a pet bit for to beach a ship in. Fine flat sand, never a cat's paw, trees all around of it, and flowers a-blowin' like a garden on that old ship. And once beached, I inquired, how shall we get her off again? Why so, he replied. You take a line ashore there on the other side at low water, take a turn about one of them big pines, bring it back, take a turn about the capstan, and lie too for the tide. Come high water, all hands take a pull on the line, and off she comes as sweet as natter. And now, boy, you stand by. We're near the bit now, and she's too much way on her. He issued his commands, which I breathlessly obeyed. Starboard a little, so, steady, starboard, larboard a little, steady, steady. All of a sudden he cried, Now, my hearty luff! And I put the helm hard up, and the Hispaniola swung round rapidly and ran stem on for the low wooded shore. The excitement of these last maneuvers interfered with the sharp watch I kept hitherto upon the coxswain. Even then I was still so much interested, waiting for the ship to touch, that I quite forgot the peril that hung over my head. I stood craning over the starboard bulwarks and watching the ripples spreading wide before the bows. I might have fallen without a struggle for my life had not a sudden disquietude seized upon me and made me turn my head. Perhaps I heard a creak or seen his shadow moving with the tail of my eye. Perhaps it was an instinct like a cat's. But, sure enough, when I looked round, there was Hans, already halfway towards me, with the dirk in his right hand. We must have both cried out aloud when our eyes met, but while mine was the shrill cry of terror, his was a roar of fury like a charging bully's. At the same instant, he threw himself forward, and I leapt sideways towards the bows. As I did so, I let go of the tiller, which sprang up sharp to leeward, and I think this saved my life, for it struck hands across the chest and stopped him, for the moment, dead. Before he could recover, I darted out of the corner where he tried to trap me. Now I could use all the deck to dodge about. Just forward of the mainmast, I stopped, drew a pistol from my pocket, took a cool aim. He had already turned and once more came directly after me. I pulled the trigger. The hammer fell but there followed neither flash nor sound. The priming was useless with sea water. I cursed myself for my neglect. Why did I not, long before, reprime and reload my only weapons? Then I should not have been as now, a mere fleeing sheep before this butcher. Wounded as he was, it was wonderful how fast he could move, his grizzled hair tumbling over his face, and his face itself as red as a red ensign with his haste and fury. I had no time to try my other pistol, nor indeed much inclination, for I was sure it would be useless. One thing I saw plainly, 
I must not simply retreat before him, or he would speedily hold me boxed into the bows, as a moment since he had so nearly boxed me in the stern. Once so caught, nine or ten inches of the blood-stained dirk would be my last experience on this side of eternity. I placed my palms against the main mast, which was of a goodish bigness, and waited, every nerve upon the stretch. Seeing that I meant to dodge, he also paused, and a moment or two passed in feints on his part, and corresponding movements upon mine. It was such a game as I often played at home about the rocks of Black Hill Cove, but never before, you may be sure, with such a wildly beating heart as now. Still, as I say, it was a boy's game, and I thought I could hold my own at it against an elderly seaman with a wounded thigh. Indeed, my courage began to rise so high that I allowed myself a few darting thoughts on what would be the end of the affair. And while I saw certainly that I could spin it out for long, I saw no hope of any ultimate escape. Well, while things stood thus, suddenly the Hispaniola struck, staggered, and grounded herself for an instant in the sand, and then, swift as a blow, canted over to the port side till the deck stood at an angle of 45 degrees and about a puncheon of water splashed into the scupper holes and lay in a pool between the deck and the bulwark. We were both of us capsized in a second and both of us rolled almost together into the scuppers, the dead red cap with his arms still spread out, tumbling stiffly after us. So near were we indeed that my head came against the coxswain's foot with a crack that made my teeth rattle. Blow and all, I was the first to foot again, for hands got involved with the dead body. The sudden canting of the ship made the deck no place for running on. I had to find some new way of escape, and that upon the instant, for my foe was almost touching me. Quick as a thought, I sprang into the mizzen shrouds, rattled up hand over hand, and did not draw breath till I was seated on the cross trees. My promptness saved me. The dirk struck not half a foot below me as I pursued my upward flight, and there stood Israel Hands with his mouth open and his face upturned to mine, a perfect statue of surprise and disappointment. Now that I had a moment to myself, I lost no time in changing the priming of my pistol, and then, having one ready for service, and to make assurance doubly sure, I proceeded to draw the load of the other and recharge it afresh from the beginning. My new employment struck hands all of a heap. He began to see the dice going against him, and after an obvious hesitation, he also hauled himself heavily into the shrouds, and with the dirk in his teeth, began slowly and painfully to mount. It cost him no end of time and groans to haul his wounded leg behind him, and I quietly finished my arrangements before he could climb more than the third of the way up. Then, with a pistol in either hand, I addressed him. One more step, Mr. Hands, said I, and I'll blow your brains out. Dead men don't bite, you know, I added with a chuckle. He stopped instantly. I could see by the working of his face that he was trying to think, and the process was so slow and laborious that, in my newfound security, I laughed aloud. At last, with a swallow or two, he spoke, 
his face still wearing the same expression of extreme perplexity. In order to speak, he took the dagger from his mouth, but in all else he remained unmoved. Jim, says he, I reckon we're fouled, you and me, and we'll have to sign articles. I had you but for that there lurch, but I don't have no luck, not I, and I reckon I'll have to strike, which comes hard, you see, for a master mariner to a ship's yunker like you, Jim. I was drinking in his words and smiling away as conceited as a cock upon a wall when, all in a breath, back went his right hand over his shoulder. Something sang like an arrow through the air. I felt a blow and then a sharp pang, and there I was, pinned by the shoulder to the mast. In the horrid pain and surprise of the moment, both my pistols went off. I scarce can say it was by my own volition, and I am sure it was without a conscious aim. Both pistols escaped out of my hands. They did not fall alone. With a choked cry, the coxswain loosed his grasp upon the shrouds and plunged head first into the water. Well, that concludes this episode of Ken Reads the Classics. Join us next time when we find out if Israel hands indeed move to the other side of eternity and what adventures await young Captain Hawkins.